Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design, and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. This episode, The Retail Rumba, One Step Back, Two Steps Forward, we are joined by Andrew McQuilkin, BHDP Retail Market Leader, and Declan McCormick, BHDP Retail Client Leader. Like a dance, retail design is a creative art form. And like the rumba, the industry sometimes takes a step back before taking two steps forward. After the pandemic, retailers are looking to take those steps and Andrew and Declan share insights from shopper data and conversations with leading retailers to make those steps strategic. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, Senior Strategist for BHDP, and I'll let our guests introduce themselves further. We're here to talk about something called the retail rumba, one step backward, two steps forward, and to help us unpack what that is, we're joined today by Andrew and Declan. Andrew, would you like to go first? Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, it's Andrew McQuilkin. I am the retail practice leader for BHDP. I've been heavily involved in retail for upwards now of 40 years. Yes, I began when I was 12. And it's really interesting what's been happening, and we're glad to talk about where we see things headed post-pandemic with the shoppers. It is interesting that work was different. You could start at 12 back then when you when you did that. <laughs> Time's changed, certainly. Declan, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Yes. Hi, Brian. My name is Declan McCormack, and I am a retail client leader at BHDP. Been in the retail industry for 25 plus years, and hopefully 25 more. Well, welcome to both of you. I'm excited to talk about what we're talking about today. Um, recently, you've done a roundtable with retailers that had not just a global impact, but have been impacted globally. And the summary of that you titled The Retail Rumba, One Step Backwards, Two Steps Forward. Tell us more about that. What is the retail rumba? And I guess starting with the step one, what was the step backwards? Declan, take it away. I can jump in. So I call it the retail rumba. Andrew calls it the retail rumba. So when we began to plan, Brian, for this latest roundtable quite a few months back, Andrew and I were talking about the topic and we were looking back over the past year, a very, very challenging year, obviously, and we thought it might be a great way to present a topic by let's exploring first what's happened in the past in retail and then taking that information, learning from that, and then how do we apply insights from that to move forward in a positive way? So to us, it was, it was, let's go and take one step back first. And we went back two decades and even more and really evaluated events in retail that had a, a major negative impact. And then we, we took some learnings from that and then began to plan out, you know, what sh should we be recommending to retailers today, which is the first step forward. And then how can we help retailers solve for the long term, for the future? So, you know, it, it turned into this one step back, two steps forward. And it was Andrew that coined the phrase, the retail rumba, because to us, it felt like a dance. It was a very choreographed effort on our behalf, that one step or two steps. And, you know, dance being an art form, just like creative retail design, we thought that these married well together. And in fact, the rumba is a three-step exercise. Being Irish, I was thinking of the retail jig. I think Andrew, being a Scottish origin, was, was thinking of the retail Kaylee, but they didn't, they didn't really sound too good. And you know, like a nice uh, alliteration, you know, retail rumba. That just retail rumba. It's an art form. I like a good Kaylee band. That's nice. Uh, so yeah, Andrew, did you want to add to what Declan said there? 
I think what was really important is since retail is historically so resilient, right? When when downturns like this happen, retail is one of the areas in the economy that get hit first. But because they're so resilient, they're able to bounce back and not only get back to where they were, but they adjust well to the changes in the economy and shopping behaviors and even their business plans so that they take that extra step forward. So we wanted to kind of by looking back, make sure that everybody realized this has happened before. We figured it out. There ended up being a, f- a few pioneers and leaders that came, you know, and were able to jump ahead and took some risk. And everybody else was able to do their version of that. As somebody else figures out what the new dance is, I think we're very collaborative as an industry so we can all move forward. Yeah, thanks for that, Andrew. One of the things I was curious about that Declan said, this sounds like it was very data driven. So that step backwards was, you know, how far back can we analyze and how do we bring that data forward? But this roundtable was data driven. You actually came in with shopper inputs on, you know, like the current state of mind as well. What did that information tell you and, and what did you share with the participants? Maybe to go back a step further, Brian, is why do we gather data and why do we try and understand the other side of the aisle, the retailer side? And I think it's for us the BHDP process, and we spoke about this in a previous roundtable. When we start a creative project, we don't start with putting pen to paper and sketching. We dive or go back upstream to understand quite a few things. One is what's the business objective of this initiative? But also from our perspective, to be to be successful consultants, we need to be able to deliver to our clients knowledge about their shoppers and about how we can bring their business to life and make it succeed financially. So over the last 12 months alone, we've conducted three separate 1,000 shopper surveys. The first one was back in March of 2020, then in June 2020, and the most recent one was in March of 2021. And then in parallel with that, then we conducted three retailer roundtables. So these roundtables were fed from some of the data that we gathered from the research and they informed it. So this last one you mentioned, Brian, this retail rumba roundtable was fed by our March 2021 research. And what we did was we, again, surveyed 1,000 shoppers. Each of these shoppers had to have shopped at a specific set of, of specialty brands. There were 21 brands. And we gathered some amazing information from that. And then we also surveyed some retailers to get their perspective, again, the other side of the aisle, if you will. And we saw two separate two separate notions here. We, we heard one thing from shoppers and we were seeing something else from the retailers. We were also reading across the press. I mean, a lot of industry pundits for the last two or three years have been saying things about retail that are telling us one thing. So I'll let Andrew explain more maybe on some of the what we heard from shoppers and then what we heard from the other side. Thanks, Declan. We asked about 10 or 12 questions. About eight of those questions we repeated every time. So we're, we're actually looking for trends and we can't wait to do our next one in June where we kind of take some of the predictions that the shoppers were making about themselves in you know the next quarter and compare it to what they actually do based on what they said. So what was really interesting is this whole notion that malls are dead because they were sliding before the pandemic and the pandemic put a, a nail in that coffin. And we said, well, all these shopper behaviors are now permanently changed. They're going online. If you look at malls, based on most states, it was it was non-essential retail, so they were they were absolutely closed. So there was no choice, but you know, shoppers had to go and find different ways to get their products and and fulfillment. 
And in the questions that we asked, especially the last time we expanded the question of, you know, your return. So we asked them, you know, based on each season coming up over the next year, where would you be? You know, where are you now versus where you're going to be and where you're going to be the most comfortable shopping in terms of retail channels. And what started out as being initially in the first surveys that malls were not where they wanted to be or where they were currently shopping. And then watching this increase over each survey and then asking them moving forward over the next four seasons, where will you be and where are you going to be the most comfortable shopping? So indoor mall went from one of the worst to the highest score that they all see themselves feeling comfortable going back, the most comfortable going back and shopping indoor malls. And so with that data, we said, okay, let's present that back to the retailers and say, okay, where are you investing? The retailers have been telling us they're investing in other types of channels. Obviously, they, if they didn't have online, they're investing in online. But they started to talk about divesting out of the malls and not investing any money here. Yes, they did mitigation and made sure that was a, a minimum before they had the chance to reopen when they were allowed to reopen. But they were looking at outbuilding strip malls, more independent and, and pulling themselves out as the future of their channel. And we said to them, hold on a second, but shoppers are saying they're going back to the mall and they're going to back to mall in force. For whatever reason, they think that's gonna be the most comfortable place for them to shop and they desire to go back. Why are you not spending any money enhancing that experience? We got retailers in the roundtable say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. And we kind of said, well, wait a second. We believe the shopper's in charge now, not the retailer. So even if you think department stores and mall stores are going to continue to go down, why would you not maximize what is where most of your revenue is coming over for the next couple of years, that situation, and get as much experience building as you can so that when they come back, you keep them and maybe even keep more of them because they have a nostalgic view of shopping the mall. And now you've enhanced it to address their safety concerns, but also a higher level of experience, right? Because there is a difference in in-person shopping that online will never give you. So why aren't you leveraging that? So right now, that's the big question out there that we're gonna now go deeper on the next survey and say, okay, how do we resolve that with the next survey with shoppers and then the next follow-up roundtable to make sure that if shoppers said they were gonna go back to the mall, and they are going back to the mall, how do we help retailers understand that there might be a different way to invest? Have you seen any information that indicates that shoppers are going back to the mall? Because I think the last time I was seriously in a mall, CDs had taken over from cassettes. So I wonder, you know, <laughs> is, am I the wrong demographic? And was there a specific age group that said, yeah, we're the ones that are gonna come back and, and make the mall happen or? Yes. A resounding yes, in fact. So because we've done, we've conducted these three rounds, we can see the trends and patterns and we can compare numbers. And even between June 2020 research we did and our recent one in March 2021, we see a significant uptick in the amount of shopping. We asked shoppers in 2020 to, of these 21 brands, how often do you shop there? Not dollars, but you know, how many occasions? And we got the data back. And then in March 2021, then we asked the exact same question. And it was a up overall shopping was up by 48%, almost 50%. And what's funny is that not just are we seeing an uptick, and we read about that in the press too. I mean, it, it, spending is, is way up, but there's also a shift to in the type of shopping. What's interesting is that in, in 2020, the most shop brand was Bath and Body Works. So we were in the midst of the pandemic and people were concerned about sanitation and, and cleanliness and so on. And, and that was way ahead. It was pretty much a one horse race, Bath and Body. 
And then in March 2021, they've dropped into second place, which is still huge. But casual brands had taken the lead here. Nike was the number one shopped brand. But then we also see that at leisure wear is making a major surge here. And some of the American casuals and basics are coming in again. Indoor mall stores, like we mentioned, these especially brands, they're seeing these numbers as they begin to reopen. A lot of times we're doing this research and we're trying to be in the moment. And we're not necessarily as sophisticated as, say, the Wall Street Journal, who turned around on, I think it was April 22nd. And they're saying shoppers are returning to the malls with a huge urge to spend. And they're really talking about vaccinated shoppers. And when we did that initial research and we asked the shoppers where they're most comfortable and are they going to return, the youngest generation we surveyed, 14 to 17-year-olds, they indicated they were going to go back and shop in the indoor mall more than before the pandemic. And that has just increased. And, and we see each time we're going to do this, I think there's a need and the desire for certainly the younger generation to make those social connections they haven't had for a year. If they're going to come back more, what are you going to do to keep them to stay and get back your market share? That's a great point, Andrew, I think. And to add to that, you know, some skeptics would say of this data, or even the Wall Street Journal article that people are coming back in droves, and is that, well, maybe initially this is skewed behavior because they've had limited opportunities over the last year, and maybe they just can't wait to get back out in store again. And some would say, will this trend continue or will it level off again, like it was to some degree before the pandemic? But shopping is more than just shopping. What we learned from our research is that shoppers enjoy the experience, the socialization factor, the entertainment factor, and there's more to shopping than just purchasing and walking home with a bag. I think that's one of the reasons why the indoor mall environment is very exciting for the younger shoppers because they can do all of that there. Just to go back a bit of data here again is when we looked at the preferred formats for shopping back in 2020, and then we've asked shoppers to tell us which formats. So I mean by format, indoor mall, outdoor mall, strip mall, freestanding building, main street, et cetera, you get it. So we asked them which is their preferred mode of format of shopping. And then over the course of the next year, by season, like Andrew mentioned, spring, summer, fall, and winter, where they project themselves or anticipate will be their preferred. And like Andrew mentioned, a resounding the, the trend line for indoor malls rockets up. The most preferred shopping format back in middle of last year was the outdoor mall. Well, the most preferred form of shopping next winter will be indoor mall by far. You know, that it's interesting because I think, Declan, I would have been one of the cynics. Actually, I know I am because I'm like, is this just a nostalgic throwback to want to go to the mall because we absolutely haven't been able to go anywhere? But what I heard you and Andrew both say is there's the positivity of that social aspect. It's that chance to gather. Even though it's an enclosed space, malls tend to be a little more open. So there's little pockets of space where you're not crowded by people starting to be won over to that there's possibility of benefit here. But I also heard Andrew say, even though retailers don't believe that this will be a sustained trend, there's an opportunity here to make it a trend if you improve the experience of the mall. Is that what you were saying, Andrew? Yes. So even if it goes back to this reestablished downturn trend line, if that's going to last a little longer, why wouldn't you invest and maximize the amount of 
return you're going to get from that channel when that channel currently is your biggest channel as things begin to open up. So, you know, it's a business decision. You're going to look 10 years ahead and get out now, or are you going to do both, right? Think about those independent locations, the stores on the outposts, or are you going to turn around and balance the two? Let one wind down, but make sure you get as much as you can out of it. And maybe the malls might give them 10 years to figure out how to reinvent it. Certainly the A-level malls have, you know, there's a lot bigger entertainment value. The D and C malls might still be on the way out, but maybe there's still hope for the B malls that they can take advantage of and, and extend that even further, or it gives it a chance to reinvent. And again, we're talking mostly about specialty brands here who got hit the hardest because they weren't essential retail. And Brian, many retailers have been exploring off-mall strategies for some time now. And we know that's that's happening, but you know, our advice is to use the term, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We we don't think you should put all your eggs in one basket by saying we're forgetting the indoor mall. We are going all outdoor or off-mall strategies. Like Andrew mentioned, this format is already there and it's already there in a great place. But one of our recommendations and our latest writing on this was you really got to amp up this new experience for the shoppers. When they come back, when they're all feeling less anxious and more safe, when they come back, we've got to make this a very, very special environment for them, an environment where they've rekindled their passion for indoor malls. So we have a chance to do that, and we need to work with retailers on that whole notion. But I think you're starting to lead to, Declan, there's the concept that I just learned about yesterday of fulfillment and what that means in retail. I don't know, like, is this what we're talking about, creating that fulfillment yeah. expectation? What What is that? Explain it and take us further. So. What's really interesting is in the retailers that we talked to in the last roundtable, you know, this idea of convenience became higher and higher within the shopper's mind they, they, or their shopper's minds, that they wanted that, that immediate need to fulfill. And that's when, you know, you've got companies like Amazon trying to do these two-hour deliveries and the idea that you can click and with that day or at least the next day you would get it. And that was satisfying shoppers' needs for immediate fulfillment. And what happened in the pandemic is a lot of these fulfillment strategies were leveraging like say machine learning and AI and they were doing predictive within each region what shoppers might want to buy beforehand. So their distribution centers were getting the product that you didn't even know, know you needed yet, right? Because they were really going deep into the past data. Well, when the pandemic hit, all that data meant nothing because the behaviors had instantly changed with you know, the government shutdowns and people's fear about going to spaces. You, know, you don't want to touch anything. So what happened is they've had to reset. The retailers actually who were sort of the mid-level or had never made the investment for AI predictors for distribution and fulfillment actually did much better because their store managers could listen to the customers coming in if they were essential and make those adjustments on the fly and move things from one store to the other or be able to quickly tell a customer, hey, go down five miles. It's already in stock. There it is. So this whole idea of fulfillment has been out there before the pandemic. And you would think that it would have put the nail in the coffin on a lot of retail, but because online you know, fulfillments were all messed up because they couldn't predict anything, and the true retailers have been at it for years could go back to the old ways and make sure that they could listen to the customer and, and move things around and deliver. And I think that's really helped. Like we saw data on Amazon Prime customers before the pandemic that if they went into a store and they didn't have it, they would talk to somebody at the store, find out where it was. They'd find out it's another location. They would go five miles and go to that store, right? And then if they didn't have that store, those loyal shoppers to that brand would go to a third store who was a competitor. 
And if that competitor did not have it, they will never buy that item in store ever again. So fulfillment's a very powerful thing. During the pandemic, that item may have never been available anymore because there was a rush on it or, you know, with things that were happening overseas, it could never get to the United States. So they found other brands to go to. Well, the best brand you could go to when you were a Prime member is when your brand was out of stock that you were now buying through the system, you went to the store. So Prime members were going to the retail locations to buy stuff while there were new people joining Prime to get it online because of the fear. And so now they're trying to hold on to those Prime members. And if you really want something really fast, the fastest way is to drive to the store, get it, and leave. And you can do that within two hours. So I think people realize that the actual store becomes a fulfillment center. And a lot of retailers have made that shift to think about retail as fulfillment. And, and we know that for a fact, too. Again, we asked some pointed questions of our shoppers both last year and this year. And we asked them, what are your top reasons for not returning to a store or no longer shopping at a particular brand? And the top reason by far was low out of stock, fulfillment issues. And we know that will not be solved overnight, Brian. This whole omni-channel, multi-channel, dual, single-channel issue is, is still being worked out. But we believe that retailers should be more transparent and honest with their shoppers and you know, make them aware of the challenges that they face with procuring these products themselves, manufacturing issues and so on, and make it clear to shoppers that look, we're trying our best. You've been great. Stay with us here until we figure it out. But here's something else we can give you instead of product X. So we think there should be more transparency in, in that whole process. Perfect. Thanks for that, Declan. You know, the pandemic was an extreme moment in time. I think it's interesting that it had a major impact on the data since most uh, decisions made in most industries nowadays to use unfair generalizations are data driven. And to see that data was disrupted by that pandemic, I I'm curious um, if we take a few steps back in this rumba, historically, what other disruptions has retail seen? Because it seems to be a cyclical industry that gets impacted a lot. You know, we explored the last two or three decades and there is a trend. There's this, you know, ebb and flow, if you will, that happens every seven to 10 years. And unfortunate events, I mean, the we, we go back to 2001, 9-11. That was just such a, a traumatic event for, and sad event for, for, the, for the country. That had a major impact. And then, you know, we moved on a few years and then came the Great Recession seven or eight years later. And what we were looking for was, I guess, primarily confirmation that these events that are out of our control, whether they be acts of God, war, nature, what have you, they do have an impact on retail. And like Andrew mentioned earlier, retail is more prone than other industries to these types of events and failures because of them. So, you know, typically it'll, it'll cause uncertainty, it'll cause anxiety, it, it causes economic issues. So if anything, this validated for us that events happen and they have happened at a pretty regular cadence, but events will happen in the future and we've got to be ready for that. And we've got to know that it's going to cause uncertainty, anxiety, it's going to cause, you know, business decisions to be to be changed. Thanks for that, Declan. Did you want to add to that, Andrew, at all? Yeah, one of our one of our retail clients was on the last roundtable and, and they they talked to this idea, the idea that we need to be ready. Right. And so we need to be we need to be flexible. We need to make sure that we don't, you know, ingrain our status quo where we can't change on the fly. 
he was talking about operational issues as well as in-store issues about how they lay out their stores and be able to react accordingly. And that shopper research was one of the keys that they really weren't going deep into, that they really needed to make sure that in knowing that it's going to change again at some point in the future, what data do we need to gather so that we can react quicker? And they're a small regional, so they're a little more adaptable and flexible, but they, he still felt that they were stuck in the mud with their status quo and couldn't adapt quickly enough, but at least they could adapt quicker than some of the other retailers and take advantage of that. Yeah, so if we come back to present, we need to talk a little bit about omni-choice because I heard you say that specialty brand retailers that were considered non-essential took the biggest hit during the pandemic, and maybe those that didn't have that option to shop online really felt the sting a lot deeper. So what does this do, though, when we look forward to the actual brick and mortar store? So like physical locations, you know, what are people investing in? Like, which way do we go? This is coming out of our shopper research, right? We will hold omni-channel. And when we were starting to do our research and starting to look at the trends that, that consumers were looking at, our initial survey, you know, retail, which was before the pandemic, we were asking coming out of a, a research paper that Declan was working on, on clicks to bricks, you know, what were people's preferred choices? And, you know, in his initial survey, you know, just over 10% had what they call no preference about which channel they shopped, you know, online, in-store or anything in between. And then in the first survey during the pandemic, it shot up. It more than doubled in the people who were no preference. And we said, well, there's a trend line there that we've even seen it continue up with this trend line. And we said, well, you know, most things go down and go back up again when things go back to normal. This has gone up and up and probably will go up again. And the idea that shoppers had no preference meant that retailers couldn't predict which shopper they were, whether the online shopper, the in-store shopper, a little bit of hybrid, right? But as that percentage increases and you can't predict that shopper, as a retailer, you're no longer in charge. You cannot predict where to invest from a channel standpoint because now with shoppers having tried all of it and having been forced to try all of it, this idea of no preference has accelerated. So a shopper's not going to have a preferred way to shop. It's going to be based on occasion, um, what their current needs are, the time that they have allotted, if they need to reconnect with a brand or with the people who are in store, if they're with their family, without their family. So we think this whole idea of omni-choice means that they expect now every brand to deliver at the same level of brand consistency this idea of not only online and in-store, but pick up at the curb, pick up in-store, lockers, walk-up windows, drive-up. That has to be a consistent experience and tone of voice for them. What a lot of retailers did in the second round table is they talked about the disconnect between those different channels and they really weren't being consistent. They knew they had a challenge there. So we're saying from an omni-choice standpoint, if you're not getting what you need, say, in mall as a specialty retailer because you, your clients now are thinking about curbside and other channels and you can't offer it because you're in a mall, you're landlocked. Well, now you're starting to look at you know outbuildings and things like that that you can maybe put drive up into so that you can offer that curbside and drive up directly to your store. So as you're now designing a space and look at your building, you don't necessarily want your shopper to drive all the way past the back of a building that's you know, peeling concrete and a trash compactor and 18 wheelers. You wanna make it all part of what you're offering. So when you see your storefront, all those offerings are there for them. So whatever I'll say mindset they're in that day, all their preferences, regardless of what it is, is available. So our challenge to retailers is, you really need to rethink the front end of all your stores 
and think about how to retrofit these ideas. And if you're going to go off mall and create new concepts, make sure it's part of what you're you're going to want to achieve. So that, you know, we talked about that 60-day behavior that gets set in with any shopper or any person in terms of behavior. Some say it's like 220. Well, we're way past that in terms of behaviors. So these are now ingrained, this idea of omni-choice. And we need to think about how we're going to deliver it. My first shopping experience during the pandemic, because I was very nervous about going into a store, but I decided I was going to put that garden together that I'd been thinking about for years. And it became clear that I was going to need fencing when, as I was digging the garden, a deer walked up and was like within 20 feet of me going, when's the salad buffet open? So fencing isn't something that's easy to have delivered. So I went to the local hardware store, found out that I could do the curbside pickup. When I got there, I wasn't sure where to go. And when I found my spot, it was a five-gallon bucket full of concrete with a sign in it. I think that was the first level reaction to what was happening. But what are like the next steps people are taking for that pickup experience? I don't know, Declan, if you want to take that one. The industry term is BOPAC, buy online, pick up at curb. So B-O-P-A-C. And you're right. A lot of retailers are using this as a means to get customers to the store, maybe not in store, but at store. And it's a very temporary fix. It's almost a Band-Aid. They know shoppers want to do this. And our research tells us the same, that they want to pick up at curb. But we need to take a whole different approach to the BOPAC piece, because how do we create this a branded and meaningful experience at curb, the same as would be in store? And we believe that retailers need to really embrace this. We don't know if this is going to be here to stay for the next five years. Maybe something that's short term and people will get back in store again. We don't believe so. We think it's going to be here to stay and it's become an extension of a store, if you will. So in our mind, retailers need to embrace this and really think of their capital allocation for in for stores and determine how much they can now apply to the outside of the store to create this, again, branded experience. It's not just about driving up, to your point, um, there's a paper sign or a metal sign and there's a, a metal pole in a concrete filled bucket. That's a band-aid. That's not a great experience for the shopper. So we believe that the industry's got to really take two steps forward, if you will, on this whole bullpack element of stores. And we've got lots of ideas on that. Nobody's doing it right now completely. There's a lot of experimentation, but it's still very, very band-aid-ish, if you will. I think about many years past about you know, the QSR industry, these quick service restaurants. We all kind of remember the old days of quick service restaurants. You know, when we would drive up to this restaurant and it was the most horrible experience, right? You know, you had to roll down your window because you're going to go to the drive up window. But the minute you roll down your window, the big trash bin reeking of fermented thrown out French fries and burgers that started to waft into your space. The whole I don't experience know where you're eating, but man, okay. <laughs> that, was, that was some of these brands in the old days. And McDonald's came along and they realized that there was a certain point, an inflection point where 51% of their sales were coming from their windows. So they realized they needed to reinvent and create a brand experience that was uniquely McDonald's for that drive up. And if you look at even McDonald's now, they lead that industry in terms of the double lane, the whole system, the way you order, the first window, the second window. You don't see the trash bin anymore, right? It's, it's landscaped. It's beautiful, a lot of these drive-ups. And I think the rest of the industry now needs to realize this is an expectation, regardless that it might not be as profitable as people shopping in-store. The idea that you need to offer it is part of the expectation because if you as a shopper – 
believe that you have no preference and you want these options and you got to shop other brands depending what was in or out in terms of fulfillment and you don't offer this because that day they want curbside and you didn't invest in it and it's not as branded an experience as you do in store, then you're going to go to a competitor who's figured it out. So I think the industry is right to do what McDonald's did in reinventing, say, what it did for its outdoor drive-up capability, and they should really be thinking about what that experience needs to be so that it's all wrapped together. I mean, there's always this thing between online and in-store, the difference is. Well, now it's it's everything in between all has to be level so that you have that same communication and the same investment. So as architects, we're ready and prepared to think about that whole brand promise and the strand strategy and to work with the teams to make sure that these buildings are being built in a way, in an efficient way, that still allow this omni-choice to happen within their, you know, I'll call it the front end. Sure. Personally, I was an anxious shopper prior to the pandemic, but I wonder though, has that shopper anxiety permeated to other folks? I don't know. Declan, do you want to talk about what are you guys talking about, thinking about? Yeah. So, Brian, I'm glad we came to this because you're not alone when it comes to anxiety. I think two bits of interesting data here. In our comparison of our shopper surveys, we asked the same question. Back in June of 2020, we asked shoppers, post-COVID, will they have concerns about shopping in-store? 38.5% of shoppers said yes that they would have concerns about shopping in store. And then it's amazing how the, the data parallels here with an American Medical Association study recently about depression and anxiety, how prevalent they are during the COVID pandemic. And they say that one in three Americans are suffering symptoms of stress or anxieties. So we do think that retailers, we think this is a somewhat easy fix. They need to relieve the shopper anxiety in store. And it's not just talking to shoppers that they're doing these things. These things have to be very, very evident to shoppers when they're in store. Shoppers need to see employees undertaking certain procedures. It's great having a big sign when you walk into store saying carts are sanitized, aisles are washed, fixtures are clean. You've got to see that, though, to build trust, to gain the trust of the shoppers. I think you also turned around, Declan, and said within this, the retail Rama, that first step back is addressing these new behaviors and these new concerns and the anxiety of shoppers. While these mitigation strategies were temporary and they want to see not only the plastic up and hand sanitizer, they want to see people using it and they want to see it active, but it's all temporary. So are you really serious about your commitment to their safety long term when you have temporary looking solutions? Are you serious about upgrading what you've done temporarily to make it feel more permanent? We talk to clients all the time about signage. And if you really want to talk about your core values and your message within a space, you don't do it on a vinyl hanging sign that, you know, curls on the edges. You make it feel solid and you attach it to the wall. It's here to stay. It's our core values. These mitigation strategies are, are right now, they feel temporary. And I think you want to prove to the shopper that their anxiety can be calmed down, that, hey, we're here, we're doing it right, we're doing it permanently. And then you can take the next steps forward to start thinking about the future. I do know that there are some retailers that are taking things very seriously, like air quality and upgrading the handling systems that improve the indoor air quality, making that a serious investment now. Why wouldn't you put in drive-up windows or curbside? Yeah. Now, drive-up window might not be something that, you know, two years from now you're going to need. But the idea is that in the future, much to our, our existing client who talked about this, the idea, though, if it happens again, we already have the infrastructure to address it. 
so you can adapt quickly. So um, we've used up most of our time, and I want to make sure that we've covered everything you gentlemen want to talk about. Do you want to address what retailers could be thinking about to bring people back into the stores or whatever final thoughts you may have? The, the psyche of the shopper in-store should be what it was years back when they would come to a store and they wouldn't even think of their safety. All they would do would enjoy the environment, enjoy the experience, enjoy the thrill of shopping. We need to go back there again. And if we can help relieve the anxiety, I think that's an easy fix. And then at store, we need to take this whole other platform for shoppers to gain their required products and services. We need to find ways for retailers to look at their investments and understand, can they take dollars out of store to put at store? if they still expect shoppers to be coming to the at-curb thing. So the at-store piece has to be branded. It's got to feel meaningful. It's got to feel like it's part of the experience, and it's got to feel permanent. That was brilliant. Thank you, Declan. Andrew, any final passing thoughts? As the song comes to an end on this particular rumba, right? <laughs> so here at BHTP, we're going to continue to survey a thousand shoppers at a time. And we can't wait to be able to help the retailers in the industry move forward on these issues and take a big leap forward as that second leap. Fantastic. Thank you both. Declan, Andrew, pleasure as always. I like the dance. They're both rumbaying for those listening. You can't see it, I know, but it's, it's delightful. Thank you both for your time. Thank you for joining Trends and Tensions presented by BHTP for this episode, The Retail Rumba, One Step Back, Two Steps Forward, with Andrew McQuilkin, BHTP Retail Market Leader, and Declan McCormick, BHTP Retail Client Leader. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. I'm your host, Brian Trainer, and I hope you'll join us for another episode of Trends and Tensions to see what topics drive design.